is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The next time you go to a restaurant and order something and the portion comes out a lot smaller than you thought, blame it on Ozempic. We'll go in-depth. Drivers are ditching the bird, you know the bird, uh, for a new and maybe more hurtful method of showing their anger. Later, we'll talk to actor Gary Sinise about his upcoming music performance in Southern California. It's for a very good cause. When you were talking about the bird, you made a gesture. Was it at me? That No, not at you. Oh, okay, I was you made a gesture. demonstrating it to the radio audience who uh-huh. can't see it. Okay, okay, just clarifying there. <laughs> we, we start with Ozempic and restaurants. With us is Sammy uh, Musevich, who's owner of Sojourn and Sojourn Social Restaurants in New York City, and Dr. Suhail Salim, who's a gastroenterologist with Dignity Health Northridge Hospital. You see, by making that gesture, Rob, you you got me all flushed. I threw you off, yeah. You threw me off. There we go. Uh, Sammy, let's start, start with you. So what does Ozempic have to do with food and restaurants? Uh, how is everyone? Uh, We're fine. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, I, well, it has everything to do, uh, basically. Uh, we're here on the Upper East Side, and, uh, and we have all these customers uh, coming to us uh, that uh, want smaller portions. And because we have such a, an amazing demand, uh, because of this Ozempic uh, drug, uh, we had to adjust our menu, uh, you know, for our regular customers here. They ask for it, and we you know we're charging uh, less. So we're making the the dishes uh, smaller, and uh, you know we're working with the <clears throat> with our regular customers, and you know it's it's a good response. It's actually been good for business. Sammy, have you ever thought of uh, making the portion smaller before the Ozempic thing? Because I know when I eat at uh, restaurants, generally the lower quality ones serve me so much food. It's like, are you trying to uh, make me die? Uh, but the better rest- restaurants have uh, somewhat smaller portions, and I like that better. I feel like I can really enjoy the meal and eat what I paid for. Um, yeah, absolutely. We we want everyone to uh, <clears throat> to enjoy their meal, but uh, we, you know we find that if, if something is not uh, the meal is not finished, and you know we're doing uh, something incorrectly, uh, so we always want every, everyone to finish uh, <clears throat> uh, their entrees and their appetizers. Uh, but no, we actually uh, we thought of giving. We always think of giving more, giving value, and giving. But since this drug came came, uh, you know, they just kind of showed us the way that look, smaller portions are the way to go. And uh, you know, we're kind of a small plate uh, restaurant, but we're doing even even more. We're, we're like uh, say if we have like Kobe sliders. Normally it's three in, in our order. Now we're offering one. You can have one? it without the French fries. <laughs> okay, Sammy, stay where stay where you are. Uh, Dr. Selim, uh, this drug, Ozempic, is for diabetics, right? Yes. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, yes, Ozempic is a medication that is originally intended for diabetics. It helps with insulin secretion when you need it the most, uh, and uh, that's where it was originally studied. But um, we also found that those patients were losing weight, and it's been studied now in weight loss in patients who have uh, no history of diabetes, and it was very effective for weight loss in people without diabetes as well. And and so that's uh, why it has suddenly become so much uh, more popular and 
getting so much attention. And is this trend, as far as you know, the same in L.A.? Are, are, are you getting a lot of patients who are taking it just to lose weight and presumably are then going to restaurants here and asking for less food? Yes, uh, there's a lot of people that are seeking it out. Um, I think that we do need to be somewhat cautious, though, because um, it is really intended for weight loss in people who are obese, meaning a body mass index over 30. What we are seeing, in addition to those patients who are seeking it out, is people who are not really obese, who just want to lose a few pounds or look better. And in those situations, it may not be um, safe or appropriate uh, for, for those patients. But it does work to slow stomach emptying, so you feel full more quickly and you'll want to eat less. And it works on areas in the brain to help regulate your appetite. So uh, it does help with uh, controlling your uh, hunger and appetite. So, but there's kind of a danger here because if, if someone takes it for off-label use just to, just to lose some weight, uh, the uh, you've got the slapback. Uh, when they stop taking it, they just start eating again. So it, it's not really a long-term solution to losing weight. You're, you're absolutely right that when patients come off of the drug, they could rebound back and gain and gain significant weight back. And so this is one of the things we're going to have to see long-term because the trials have only been done for a certain period of time, but when they compared people who stopped the drug early, they gained weight back more quickly. Uh, and in that case, are you meant to stay on this drug forever, or uh, what are the long-term consequences of that? You know, is it safe to take for years and years and years? And we don't know the answer to that question. It, it, does it also create a potential shortage of the drug for people who really do need it, diabetics? Absolutely. Absolutely. So patients who really do need it, the patients that benefit the most, diabetics and people with who are suffering from obesity, um, do need it the most and are having a hard time getting it and having a hard time paying for it because it is an expensive drug. Uh, and um, the uh, popularity surge has, has definitely created shortages. Pharmacies don't always have it available when we try to prescribe it for our patients. So it's been a challenge. Sammy, I want to go back to you very quickly in New York. Uh and be very honest now. I know you have a lot of uh, your customers that are coming in and they're taking Ozempic because they want to lose weight and they're eating less food. Do they really look a lot better or do they look like they could use another hamburger? Be honest. Uh, I mean, I, I think they're looking a lot better, really, They, you know, because they've been doing it for a while now. And, uh, you know, they're starting to feel good, feel healthy, and, and they feel good about themselves when, you know, they, they, they finish their plate up, uh, which was a smaller portion, of course. But if they're sticking with this consistently, and they've been doing this with uh, my restaurant here on Seven Nights Sojourn and Sojourn Social, and I send them to both places because we're kind of going out of our way to do this for everyone, and, uh, and they're coming back more. But I think they're looking really healthy. All right. Thanks so much. That's uh, Sammy Musevich, owner of some restaurants in New York City. Also, Dr. Suhail Salem, a gastroenterologist at uh, Dignity Health Northridge Hospital. Right now, though, uh, the U.S. could ban TikTok soon. The Biden administration is pushing the app's owners in China to sell their stakes, otherwise face a possible ban in the U.S. With us is tech journalist Chris Stokel-Walker. He's the author of the TikTok Boom China's dynamite app and the superpower race for social media. Chris, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, it, it, it is certainly a huge uh, app, TikTok, certainly really popular uh, with uh, teenagers and, and other young adults. But it won't be that popular if it's banned. Could it be? Um, I think it's potentially in more peril than it has ever been. 
actually. Um, we have previously had a muted ban of TikTok back in sort of the mid-2020, uh, thanks to Donald Trump, who, who kind of launched this campaign against it. But it ultimately didn't succeed. Donald Trump uh, ended up losing the presidency in terms of the election in 2020. And uh, it kind of went on the back burner for a little bit. But you know, the, the arrival of the Biden administration and a kind of more bipartisan effort and, you know, dare I say it, uh, one that kind of goes a little bit more by the book and process uh, and particularly due process when it comes to this sort of stuff could be a real risk for TikTok now, not least because we have people from both sides of the aisle saying actually they think this should be uh, basically wiped out of existence. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, it's one thing to ban it from government phones and government computers and devices, but it's another to ban it for everyone. And I don't know if the government would have the authority, correct me if I'm wrong, to ban it if they say we want to ban its use in the United States uh, outright. Would they be able to do that? And could there be a challenge based on the First Amendment? Yeah, I think they would be able to do that. We we know that the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US, CFIUS, has, has kind of uh, given an ultimatum to uh, to TikTok, saying that uh, you know, the the Chinese contingent that owns part of its app uh, through ByteDance, that the parent company that is based in China, will have to sell their stakes uh, in order to allow it to continue. That was uh, reported by the Wall Street Journal uh, this morning. Uh, whether or not that would actually ever go through is is another question entirely. It, you know, it is um, relatively un-American, I think, to to prevent the opportunity for free enterprise and also for free speech. And we have seen prior precedent that TikTok is willing to take this to court uh, with the Trump ban. And so, uh, you know, I, I would imagine that if that were to go ahead, if, if both sides were to dig in, then we would probably see a, a kind of uh, huge court battle going on. Well, let's say it's not banned, but it is sold uh, to an American company, presumably. Uh, which company is a likely candidate to buy TikTok? Yeah, well, I don't think they'll necessarily buy the entirety of TikTok, but likely the stakes. And we we know that there have been several suitors in the past. Uh, Oracle, uh, which is owned by Larry Ellison, was, was one of those that was being potentially lined up uh, the last time that TikTok was, was threatened with a ban. We now also know that Oracle has kind of become a, a trusted partner for TikTok in the United States. It's it's kind of the cornerstone of uh, what's called Project Texas by by the the company, which is their attempt to try and um, reinforce and convince the U.S. government that data of U.S. users is safe on the app. Uh, so basically, Oracle will will check everything that TikTok does. Uh, so I think that will probably be the likely company that would, would sort of want to buy into this. But, you know, weird things have happened over the last three years with this app. And the you know, last time it was up for sale, there was there was quite a long list of suitors that, that were willing to kind of step in because they see this as a, a huge app that is continually growing that has the interest of more than 100 million Americans and you know, a billion people worldwide. All right. Thanks so much. That is a tech journalist, Chris Stokel-Walker. Now, uh, I'm making a gesture now at, at Rob <laughs> that it's not the one you think. It's no, not, it's, it's a different not, one. It's, not, it's a different but one. But it's worse somehow. It could be worse yeah. than the one that you think I'm making I at Rob. I feel bad. Do you feel bad? I do. If I do that, you feel bad? I feel very bad. Well, Stop I, doing it. Give I, me the I, other one. I'll I, feel better. I, I should, no, I don't want to give you the other one. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll give you the other one. Come Thanks. Coming up also. Uh, so we're going to tell you about why we're even 
talking about yeah. that. Uh, also coming up is actor Gary Sinise, who is going to be uh, joining us. He'll be uh, in Southern California this weekend at a big air show to help veterans. Uh, right now, though, mandatory water restrictions are over for nearly 7 million people here in Southern California because all the recent rain has filled up the reservoirs. So does that mean it is time to take uh, three-hour showers or to just turn on your sprinklers and leave them on 24-7? Adele Hodgkill is the general manager of the Metropolitan Water District. I'm going to imagine that you're going to say, no, we shouldn't do those things just because we have more water now, right? That's correct. That's exactly a conservation is a way of life here in Southern California. And we've done all of it before. We need to continue doing it because every drop we can serve and save is a drop we can store for tomorrow. But, you know, it, it is, and I, I don't have to tell you, it's an uphill in many ways, uh, uphill battle because People, they, you know, they go through, as we've done this past winter, uh, you know, rainstorm after rainstorm after rainstorm. And, you know, people go, oh, it can't possibly be a water shortage problem now. We've had so much rain. So how do you convince those people otherwise? I call this the climate whiplash. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's, it's really we all feel a whiplash because, you know, we've had three years of drought. And now we're getting these these storms. Uh, this is great for us because we need to refill all the reservoirs, the storage we have used over the last years. Because I want to tell people, you know, last year in June, we did not know if we have enough water to last uh, till the end of the year for 7 million people that depend on water from Northern California. So we took these emergency actions and and thanks to these residents and community members that were able to reduce our usage by 40% and allowed the savings that we have in water to last us till the end of the year. And now what we're saying to everyone is if you recall 2019, we had a wet year, but 2021, 20, 22, and 23, we had bad years and we suffered. So this is like saving money for your bad days. We're going to Right now, we're in deficit still, and next week, we're going to be filling some of our reservoirs here in Diamond Valley Lake and Hammett, and we're working very hard to refill all the reservoirs we've used. So every drop we save, every drop that we can don't use, it's good for the pocket, but also it's good for our community to store water. So when we need it, we have it. So what you're saying is it's more like uh, even though you might have come into a windfall of cash, you've still got credit cards that have a lot uh, on them exactly. that you've still got to pay and, off, and, right? Okay. And if you, lose your, if you lose your job, you have to go find your savings. Right. And we're saying to people, let's conserve. Let's not spend the money right now because we need to save it in the account so we can use it when things are bad. Let me ask you about, uh, you know, because it's not just the reservoirs. We've, we've also got situations with the Colorado River. Is, sure. Are these storms going to help with that? It's it's a, the good news is is I, I agree with you. We still have huge vulnerability when negotiating with the other states and the federal government on the cuts we have to make. We have to make cuts because the amount of water in the river have declined. And what we need to figure out is how we can make that difference. So having water in our storage, having water everywhere, it's going to help us mitigate the future. But also what we need to do is recycle every drop of water. Uh, We're building the infrastructure of the future, build the infrastructure to move water around, clean up the groundwater basin so we can have access to it for storage and use. So what we're developing in the Metropolitan is a roadmap for the next 25 years to create a resilient future. And every community member, every person in Southern California has to do that because water is life. Are we doing, though, enough to uh, sort of capture the water that's falling 
within the city because, as you know, that water pretty much goes out, to, you know, down the drain, literally to the yeah. ocean. Uh, and there are things that can be done, but are we doing them? Yeah, I'll tell you. It's uh, you know, I, I used to work for the city, and I was involved in Measure W, which is stormwater measure that our ratepayers voted for in LA County to st- capture stormwater. Um, and what we're seeing is large projects being built. Developments are capturing stormwater on site, but also in the San Gabriel River, in the Santa Ana River, and also in the upstream areas of the LA River. There's a lot of work being done to capture and infiltrate. More needs to be done, but I think it's 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 we're in the right direction. But I want to do basically one also one of the things we need to do is make sure the groundwater basins that we're putting the water in are safe and clean. So we need to clean up these basins and ensure that we can put water in that we can pull out and use. All right, thanks so much. Uh, General Manager of the Metropolitan Water District, Adele Hodge-Khalil. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A lot of you are probably driving right now. Some of you may have gotten angry with other drivers. Me, I've never done that because I'm a completely zen person, always in control of my emotions, and I never let the dumbness of other drivers get to me. <laughs> that is such bull. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe even a few of us, uh, notice how I've, I've put that off on other yeah, people, yeah. maybe a few of us, uh, have even, you know, flipped off. You know what I'm talking about. Mm. Flipped off the other driver. I actually have uh, that finger fixed in a fixed <laughs> position as I'm driving around L.A. You've got it in a cast. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, so it's, it's always readily available. Ready to go. Uh, but if you really, really want to make someone feel bad, let's ask Jess Ponce, who is a body language expert and co-founder of Media 2x3, how you would do that. Jess, how would you make somebody feel really, really bad other than, you know, flipping them the you-know-what? Well, you know, it's very funny because I have heard people who get mad and yell out the window. Not that I've ever done that, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or use the finger. But what people are doing, and this is a beat that we are all learning from uh, because of social media and also digital natives via texting, is a thumbs down. And what's really interesting about that is how people are receiving it. And I think that we may have been yelled at or got the finger from other people, and we think, oh, that guy is just an idiot or in a bad mood, or they should look at their own driving. But the way people are receiving the thumbs down is actually in a hurtful way. It's almost like you're posting on my page or my feed that I'm not worthwhile or that I'm a bad person. It's really interesting how social media and digital natives are playing into the way that we express ourselves on the highway. Oh, I can't wait to start giving people thumbs. I mean, I can't start waiting to see how this affects other people. Uh, You know, I have done uh, when I did not want to use, you know, because I kind of pull myself back in because, you know, it gets dangerous out there. There are some people who are crazy and you can really tick them off and they can take it out on you, hurt you or someone else. Uh, So I've kind of pulled that back a little bit. But sometimes I have gotten someone's attention and I've just shaken my head. So that's kind of the same thing. I'm expressing disappointment in that person. Absolutely. And it's a way of shaming other people. And, you know, people have been conditioned to give a thumbs up like I like this or to at least acknowledge 
uh, something on social media, but a thumbs down is like, hey, I didn't like that. And I don't like you. For some reason, people are really taking it personal. I shouldn't say for some reason. I should say that it's obvious because in social media and in the digital world, a thumbs down is a negative comment. You know, but it's not like it, not like a flip up, which just is about me being angry. You know, it, it, and and I I doubt it's related. Although maybe there is some uh, genesis to it. Uh, if you go back, you know, to ancient Rome. I mean, you know, during gladiator fights, uh, depending on who lives and who dies, it was the emperor who would give either a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And if it was a thumbs down, you were not going to have a pleasant dinner. So we're going to be dinner. That's right. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, I wonder if there's some sort of a deep psychological something ingrained in our DNA that that some people respond to a thumbs down in such a negative way, because it seems like such a benign thing. It It is. And I think you bring up something that's really interesting. I think culturally we have learned, probably since we were young, what a thumbs up and a thumbs down means. It's also a visual thing so that when we look at this thing and there are no words attached to it, there is no angry motion. It is simply like almost like a microphone drop, like look at this, boom, you know, or look at this, boom, that was a thumbs up or a thumbs down. It's a very solid, definite statement that is read by others. Uh, simply for what it is. And in that way, I think we do take a very emotional response to it. So is it different if you flip somebody off, you can make someone else also, they can get angry at that and they can maybe take it out on you, get out of the car. And we, we've seen it. It's been in the news. Attack somebody, hit the car with a metal pipe, physically attack somebody, and sometimes even shoot people on the freeway. Would a thumbs down engender that same response? Is that still, is a thumbs down just as dangerous, though, in the long run? I think that a thumbs down is less aggressive and it is on some levels personal like that. That was shady that, you know, the way that you drove or, you know, you cut me off. You're not a good driver. Thumbs down. When you have a thumbs off, literally, you know, what it represents in language, you know, F you, you're saying it's almost like you're promoting a confrontation. And I think the context of it is very, very different. And also um, our emotional response is different because when we have been on digital you know, platforms and on social media, it's a passive thing, right? We understand what it is, but you know, you read the thumbs down and you're like, oh, that was bad. It's not like somebody came up to you in your face and said, F you. It, it is really, really interesting. So I don't think for now it's going to get the same response. I think a thumbs down followed up with an expression or words would result in aggression. What happens if you gave someone at the same time the finger <laughs> and the thumbs down? Oh, well, then, you know, you're just you're taking your hands them. off the driver uh, wheel. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully you're not doing it at the same time, right? No, no, no. Maybe once consecutive. No, no, if you do it at the same time, I mean, do they cancel each other out or is it just just a lot worse? 
I, I think the person who is doing it would be confused because I think it's like, I want to be upset and I'm disappointed at you, but I don't know which one I want to express. Right I'm now. conflicted. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. Uh, Jess uh, Ponce, body language expert. <laughs> See, I think they would neutralize. But I'm still, you have to take both hands off the steering wheel. Well, that's another problem. Yeah, and then you could crash, and then someone else is going to drive by giving you the thumbs down. But I have a solution for that. Yes. Drive a Tesla. <laughs> Award-winning actor Gary Sinise has been in so many movies and TV shows, we've kind of lost count. That's because Rob and I can't count very well anyway. No. But you, you've seen him in the CSI shows, the... Criminal Mind shows in movies like Apollo 13, Forrest Gump, in which he played the iconic character, Lieutenant Dan. He's also been helping military veterans and first responders through the Gary Sinise Foundation. Now, he's back in Southern California this weekend, and he's going to be performing with his Lieutenant Dan band at the Point Magoo Air Show. Gary Sinise with us now. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, we talk so much about uh, your your iconic career and so many things you've done, but to you, one thing that got left out of the list there was one of my favorite performances of yours, which was in the uh, the old uh, TV miniseries version of The Stand. Oh, The Stand, and, yeah. And, oh, yeah. And, and you were, to me, when I read the book now, I see you as that, that character. So tell us a little bit about the... Uh, about, uh, what you're trying to do and, and how you're helping military veterans and first responders. Well, gosh, I've been, uh, thanks for having me. I, I've been uh, at this for a number of years. I started the Gary Sinise Foundation uh, in, we launched publicly in 2011. Prior to that, I was very, very active supporting multiple military and first responder nonprofits out there, just trying to raise my hand and go out and do what I could. I started a band 20 years ago, and uh, the the purpose of the band is uh, really to support the men and women serving our country. That's that's why I I play in the band. That's why I created the band. And we've done over 500-something concerts now in the last 20 years, and uh, coming out to Point Magoo and doing the air show, on Saturday and then uh, going down to the the Coast Guard base in Long Beach on Sunday. This is just uh, part of what the the mission of the band is all about and the reason that I I play the music. I just want to lift spirits and uh, support our defenders and do what I can to to, uh, make sure they know they're appreciated and have a good time at the same time. And Gary, if, if some of our listeners want to uh, attend either of those events on uh, Saturday or Sunday, what do they need to know? Well, the, the Point Magoo Air Show, you can go to their website. That That is a free concert uh, for the public. So many of our concerts, uh, the majority of our concerts are on military bases. They're closed to the military. They're not open to the public. This is a public air show on uh, Saturday and Sunday at... Point Magoo at the naval base there, naval base Ventura. And uh, so it's wide open to the public. Uh, Gates open, I think, in the morning. They've got airplanes flying all day. And then we play the Blue Angels fly around uh, 4 o'clock on Saturday. And then we play right after they finish up. So uh, it should be a great day. And then the air show goes on uh, on the 19th. In Long Beach at that particular uh, uh, base the coast guard base down there that's uh that's a uh that's a show for the the coast guard so 
I recommend that anybody wants to see us, if you're in the in the neighborhood, come on out to Point Magoo on Saturday. Uh, walk us through our Lieutenant Dan Band show. What kind of music uh, do you play? What kind of songs could uh, someone expect? It's a it's a cover band. I, I started the band years ago just to uh, just to play for the military. Our first overseas tour was in um, February of 2014. We went to D- Diego Garcia. It's a small island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. We have a, a a base there. We went down there. We went to Singapore that tour. We went to Korea that tour. The year before, I actually got the band going, and we did some shows. Our first show was um, in June of 2003, uh, and then so we're we're 20 years old now. You, you know, I started the band to to play music that people are going to like. So we play something for everybody: country, pop, blues, Motown, soul, swing, classic rock. You name it; it's all over the map. Lots of hits. It's a great fun show. We usually play about 20 to 22 songs. It's a two-hour show and a lot of fun for everybody. What Was there a particular incident or thing in your life that made you want to do this? Well, I think multiple things. I have a, a lot of veterans in my family, first of all, on both my side of the family and my wife's side of the family. I got involved with supporting Vietnam veterans back in the 80s in Chicago when I was uh, living there. And... And that though that planted the seeds for what would happen after I played Lieutenant Dan, and I would, uh, you know, then extend that service to our veterans, to working with our wounded after playing the wounded soldier in Forrest Gump. Uh, that was in 1994, and then September 11th came along, and uh, we started deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan, and I just felt the call to to do something to support folks. So I started, I volunteered for the USO and started going on tours for them. And I kept begging them to let me take some musicians with me on a tour. And finally, after about six handshake tours to bases around the world and Iraq a couple of times uh, in 2003, they finally uh, said they would set up a tour for me. So 2004, we went, as I said, to Diego Garcia and Korea and I haven't stopped since. We played over maybe uh, about 550 concerts for the troops in the last 20 years. Now, in your life, which came first, uh, a discovery that you enjoyed acting and had talent at it or a discovery of playing music and that you had talent at it? Well, I played music before I before I was an actor. In fact, it was because of the music that I stumbled into acting. Um, there's a there's a legendary story, guys, in my, in my book about uh, I wrote a book called Grateful American. It came out in 2019. And I tell this story about being in high school with uh, members of my scruffy looking rock band. And we were standing in a hallway in this powerhouse of a drama teacher uh, rolled down the hall and she turned to us and she told us to come and audition for West Side Story which was a play about the, you know, these two gangs and they're fighting on stage and everything. And I thought that was kind of silly when she mentioned it, but then I showed up at the audition after school and I got in the play and it was because I happened to be standing in that hallway with the, the, uh, the, the band that she, she said, we all look like gang members and that's why we should come <laughs> and uh, audition for the play. 
<laughs> so I did, and that, and so I, I loved it. Fell in love with acting. I couldn't get enough of it. Wanted to take all the acting classes I could. I was playing in a band all the way through high school and acting in plays. And then when I got out of high school, I started a theater company that is now nearly 50 years old, Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. We started it in 1974 when I got out of high school. And now it's a massive complex of buildings, multi-million dollar complex in the city of Chicago. Many, many wonderful artists have come out of there. And uh, still going strong 49 years later. All right. Uh, Gary Sinise, thank you so much for taking time to join us. Going to be uh, with us, uh, Lieutenant Dan Band at the Point Magoo Air Show. Sounds like a good show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, That is uh, today's uh, In-Depth. We will be back tomorrow.